0: That's what I'm interested in. It's the spectrum of how what we value is changing under these circumstances as consumers and as, as organizations and groups of people who provide value out into the economy. How many people should actually be jumping onto that and going, well, this is a great opportunity. We should now communicate the values of this new way of doing things and try to make it the norm. Or... Are we better off going back to the way
1: things were? This is
2: The Strategy Behind with Adam Cox, Utah Tobias, Mortlock and Matt Wilkinson. In this episode... We explore the strategy behind the evolution of value. What does it take for leaders to adopt or adapt to the change of what is really important?
3: Well then, gentlemen, then I I officially call today's strategy behind chat about the changing value of value open. And... I'm, uh, let me remind the two of you that what we'd like to talk about today is about the changing nature of value. So we're talking about change and we've been talking about before that the world of work's changing, our social lives are changing, but now even that is changing and so the interesting thing that we're noticing is that the balance of what's valuable is also changing. At the moment, some of us, or perhaps many of us, are valuing the work that nurses and sh- supermarket employees are doing differently. Um, the way that news is being reported is changing. And the big question for us now is, how long is this change going to stay? Will we revert back to normal? What does normal really mean in terms of change and in terms of the value of what is dear to us here in our lives?
2: Mm.
0: There's definitely change afoot, and the change is coming from, you know, there is imposed change, and then there is the self-inchosen self-imposed change from the circumstances in which people, businesses, organisations, governments find themselves in. And I think there's a component just to establish kind of the ground of what the change of what is valuable means. Just to get a clear definition of how much of it is pulling us and how much of us is us pushing it. Um, there is obviously an aspirational change, like, you know, I've already seen kind of the drums start to beat in relation to great. We're now going back to normal, which was the climate crisis. Um, why would we do that? And it's like, okay, so, you know, that is a great example of, you know, some people looking at we, you know, basically, I think it is, is that there are people in society who are pointing out that we have agency over defining how we change there is a preconceived notion that we're going back to normal whatever that means and not everyone's buying it um in all facets of society and you know and uh, and, and business and government and i'm interested to know how people should be thinking about this, you know, should we be walking more and riding our bike more? But the convenience of the car and the efficiency that it brings and, you know, this, this is a set of, you know, everyone says they want to change, but humans are adverse to change. And this is this kind of dichotomy kind of at war that I think a lot of particularly people in leadership who lead teams or companies are going to really struggle with because if people are change averse, and this is a great opportunity for ch- to change for the better, but there's still change averse. You know, ha- how how are we going to you know start to create a narrative around you know the change of what is valuable, of what is important? Matt, what are your hmm. thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's probably fir- first of all just going back to some of the most fundamental questions around what is value, um, and and for me, it's. You know, we've got, you know, if we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs where we look at, you know, what is important to each of us and, you know, it's health, food, um, you know, we've, we take a lot of those things for granted in a day to day setting. And I think it's helped a lot of people refocus what they value on things that are maybe a little bit more immediate to themselves. So friends, family, the ability to, you know, to feel safe when they go outside, the ability to hug a friend, uh, a neighbor, you know, family. Um, It's what, seven, eight weeks since I had the possibility to even go see my parents. If now that lockdown has shifted slightly, I think I could go and sit in their garden, but my wife couldn't join me. So all of a sudden you're in a very you know, interesting place where you can't, you know, we're still not back to a normal where the things that we took for granted, but that that had immense amounts of value um are there. So we've still got some of those liberties uh that we would take for granted gone. And I think that that's helping us to value the people in our lives more and the interactions we have with people more. Um, if I look at some of the conversations that I have, when you say, when you ask, how are you? Uh, and how are people doing? It's no longer just a cursory. Yeah, I've got to be nice is a platitude towards being a friendly person. It's actually a genuine interest in how somebody is doing, how, uh, whether or not they're healthy, how's their mental state doing? Because the effects of this, even if, you know, fortunately like me, I can still do work exactly in the same room that I normally do that, uh, you know, my routine is more or less unperturbed. The general state of the world has changed around me. Um And therefore it could have mental, you know, mental health, you know, uh, impacts. And so what do I value? I value being able to still get outside and going for a run. I still, you know, I value being able to have food. Um And, you know, maybe uh, I value still having work with clients that are still operating and still being able to do some good in the world um, I value being valuable I guess in some ways and, and, and being able to add value to things and so that would be my you know my, my starter for 10
3: mm. I'd like to go back to defining what value is and what valuing is um as I'm listening to you matt I'm uh, what comes up for me is that it's true. The things we value um, or the value we put on the question, how are you, has changed because we now think it's right to go there as opposed to stay superficial and just say, how are you? Fine. Thanks. How are you? Fine. So the way we value our interactions is different. And if we define what... A value is, a value is, in psychology, we define it as a quality of being and doing. It's the how to that we, how do we do things? We do them by saying effectively, it is right or it is wrong. I value this highly. I value that low, uh, you know, more, less highly. Um, and it's at the very bottom of the, all the different input or or urges that drive our behavior. So when I normally see, you know, you the two of you interacting in a certain way, um, all I see is, you know, Adam asks the question, Matt either complies, you know, is agreeable or disagrees or or, or doesn't comply. So the behavior is either, you know, collaborative or maybe, you know, leading to some kind of conflict. What's below that is a whole series of like um attitudes Beliefs, and at the very bottom of that is what we value, so an attitude is you know I like, I dislike what you 've just said that's kind of quite at the surface um, um, A belief is more about um i if I do a, then b will happen it's a causal map, but below that and and influencing all of that is what we think is right or wrong, morally or maybe even just as an unconscious habit, what we Think is an habit to engage in that is the right habit to engage in, asking a question. And that's how cultures get created. So culture is a way of almost facilitating the exchange between people to make it easier so people don't really have to think about what the processes are in which they evaluate because everybody's buying into it being right, that mm. a man opens a door for a woman, not necessarily because this is anything about gender, it's just practical Man and woman standing by the door, it's an unconscious habit to say man opens door, woman walks through first. That's how cultures get created. And maybe mm. that's how culture change is now getting created. What do you think?
0: Yeah, it's interesting just when you look at the role of how people's actions and the wider social acceptance of those actions shapes a culture. Where is the tipping point for it to actually get to that stage? For example, um, I used to go out and buy groceries. <laughs> uh, with the collapse of the hospitality industry, a lot of the wholesalers have now turned their hand to um, retail distribution. So we get a box of food. The box of food comes from a nice man. He leaves it at the front door. The food produce is amazing. There is a premium to it, but the longevity of this food, because it's locally sourced and fresher, um, actually gets to a point where it is um, more beneficial for you know for me to pay that premium to you know help a local business that otherwise would go under um, get better quality food in the house. And I'm looking at this going, okay, so this is a change in behavior that has now become a cultural norm in the home. Do I continue this post this? But that comes down to what do I value? Do I value convenience? Yes. Do I value quality? Yes. Um, Do I value it coming to my door versus going out and getting it from a shop? Yeah, for me, it's kind of, you know, 50-50. And it's, what I'm interested in exploring is, you know, that is a very trivial but practical example of how people, some people are bringing food into their house, and that has changed. Um, if the value proposition that is around that externally imposed change of this is how people are surviving this current crisis, then what is... The negative business case of going back to the way things were and do people even think like that and is it the role of businesses and people to go hey everyone um this is actually good you're sourcing locally you're keeping local people employed you're helping the economy in a downturn you should be a part of this and then socializing that as to be acceptable within that particular market then becomes the change that's what i'm interested in it's the spectrum of how what we value is changing under these circumstances as consumers and as, you know, as, as organizations and groups of people who provide value out into the economy. How many people should actually be jumping onto that and going, well, this is a great opportunity. We should now communicate the values of this new way of doing things and try to make it the norm. Or are we better off going back to the way things were? And and this is the the battle that I'm seeing starting to play out in boardrooms. It's like, you know, everyone says they want to go back to normal and people don't like change, but we've already walked a long path here and if with a little bit more effort, we can actually change the culture. We can change the way things are done, Um, but people need to value it and that's what I'm interested in. Like, what are the drivers of that pull and push?
1: You're yeah, so- a lot. But yeah, Matt, go. I was going to say, so I think just to bring up your, your, your food conversation, you know, if I look at the, the start of this, you know, seven, eight weeks ago, um, there were huge queues to get in the supermarket, you know, going round, you know, snaking around the, the, the car park. Um, uh, now you go at a similar sort of time before opening and, you know, you may be one of the first in the shop. Um, th- we seem to be, you know, I've, I've, you know, have seen on the news that people are going back to a more normal cadence of shopping already. But there's still that convenience of, you know, for me, well, I'm going to go once a week. That's what I'm going to do, uh, because I don't have time to queue up because I'm too busy. I don't have time to go through that rigmarole and chance whether there's going to be a queue at the middle of the day or or you know or when the best time to go is uh, so i think that there's i think there's one side of that that is very much around the convenience of being able to get what we you know what we need quickly and it to be you know and that's something that we've learned culturally but at the same time you're still seeing that people are very wary of the human being around them and i don't know that that's shifted that much mentally as to how com- comfortable we are being in other people's presence uh, especially indoors in confined spaces and i think that's particularly important in the world of employment where you start looking at well actually what is social distancing going to mean and in, t- in terms of what is the value proposition as an employer going to mean to going to mean to employees so does that mean that all of a sudden home working is going to be an incredibly valuable thing going on and I wonder if the relationship of all of those questions, because I don't, certainly don't have the answers, is really to do with how long this this drags on for. You know, if we go through, um, you know, if, if, if as we start seeing countries coming out of lockdown, um, do we manage to keep this virus under control and in check and we avoid a second wave, then it's a blip maybe and we'll get back to normal behaviour. If this starts dragging on and we start having this perpetual fear of catching something from somebody else uh, that's going to change you know culture and it eventually may overwrite some of those inherent desires for human beings to congregate in times of danger I don't
3: think it'll override our our basic instinct to congregate in times of danger. It's far too automatic. It's how we've been wired for far too long. But I think the form in which we congregate and reach out and engage with each other might change because of this. Um, Matt, as I'm listening to you, I'm becoming a bit more optimistic about this being an opportunity for the right type of change in values or, and the right, you can already hear that I'm valuing change quite mm. highly about society right now. And I'm thinking about learning theory. So I'm thinking about how do I learn or change any of my behavior? Um, and there's like, I think is it three or four stages? So when I realize that I want to do something differently, like I want to learn how to play volleyball, for example. Um, the the first stage of that, if I want to learn how to dig, or I don't even know how you say these things that I learned when I before I could speak English properly, um, mm-hmm. learning to do a mechanical movement. Um, the first stage is you are consciously aware that you are not competent, right? You're, so you're you're consciously incompetent, or in, is it incompetent?
0: incompetent? Incompetent. Incompetent.
3: Sorry, thank you. Um, so you're consciously aware you don't know something. And then as you practice and you engage in new new behaviors, you you slowly, from the consciousness and the awareness, you go into unconsciousness. And and then uh, ultimately, you're unconsciously aware that you're actually competent again. And I think this is an opportunity to press this reset button for many of us being locked down or not able to do the things that we automatically unconsciously do to reevaluate is it actually a good thing to go shopping only once a week? And I, I think for me, personally in my life, there is some value in being more conscious and more aware of what food do I actually need to have in my house? Yeah. And if I am going for an online shopping experience, I'm making all these choices with more awareness than what I did before. And so I'm almost given the opportunity to be more deliberate and more measured in how I choose Mm. to respond to this, this crisis. And then for leaders and organizations, the opportunity then is to shape and to open up the dialogue to say, guys, right. Now we are at the point of discussing, are some of us going to return to the office? What is going to be good about this? What is going to be bad about this? Um, what will, the, will be the consequences be for families with children? What will be the consequences for single um, men who don't have a lot of contact outside of uh, the last eight weeks? Can we have an open dialogue about this and then deliberately make choices so that we can bring our, the whole group with us in terms of shifting what we all collectively value and what we all collectively believe is the right thing to do? The way we do things around here.
2: Mm,
0: the way we do things around here. Mm. It's great. Like when, for example, in the United Kingdom, like from a personal perspective, I'm currently going through the through this wonderful book here, Life in the United Kingdom.
3: <laughs> You're doing <I'm>, it too. <laughs> I'm jumping
0: through all the citizenship. We're going to have stuff. another
3: conversation after that, because <laughs> yeah, I've
0: been there last year. Hours of fun. I'll, I'll, I'll leave my commentary on this as a topic for later. <laughs> um, however, one of the values of life in the UK to protect the environment is to shop locally. It's in the book. Now, obviously, that is an explicit stated thing as a government line. This is how we do things around here. Prior this, um, prior, prior this crisis, people would go on the tube and they'd get on a bus or they'd go on a plane and they'd get some stuff from over here and over there and they would just consume because, you know, consumption is kind of, is, 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 is one of the gleaming attributes of, of, of how the economy goes. Um, and there is, when when looking at a change in what is valuable, I think there is a point around reliability and simplicity and efficiency. Like, you know, the beautifully simple kind of thing that works. It's It's bankable. It's reliable. Great. Now what has happened in recent times is that there is now a human narrative being wrapped around it. Matt, to your point about now when people ask how you are, they're not expecting good. They want to know, is your family okay? Are you safe? How's your health? How's your mental health? Mm. Like, you know, there is a humanization of interaction. Mm. And when I look at reliability, simplicity, and the food delivery, and whenever I see the food delivery guy from the stairwell, I say, hey, how you going? Stay safe. You know, have a conversation about... Genuine human interest. Now, if we take that as a construct, con, a construct and then expand it over all the different areas of how value is, you know, created, you know, both value creation and value extraction, talking about it in economic terms. Um, there's a lot that can change here to your point, Yuta, for the better. There is cause for optimism. Is it a case that Particularly in my world, you know, work doing a lot of work with corporates and you know large organizations. Is it a case where leaders of these companies should turn around and go, you know what? We're fundamentally changing how we do what we do around here because the purpose is changing. So if I look at the, the values, is the values are the values because there's a greater purpose. And the purpose is starting to become much more human, compassion, genuine interest, as opposed to kind of, you know, where it's been for a couple of decades, which, you know, frankly, has been somewhat mindless consumerism, mm-hmm. you know, broad brush comment, but you get what I mean. Um, organizations can do some really good work here. And again, I, I truly believe that the organizations who kind of grab this and start to redefine the value narrative around that um, reliability, simplicity, empathy, proposition... And bring those things together, I I think, can be incredibly valuable because then you're starting to shape how you want the world to be, as opposed to accepting how it is. Whose responsibility is that? Should it be demand or supply led?
1: Hmm. I don't know. Do you? (laughs) Well, uh, you know, I guess economies are typically demand led. In in many ways, in the fact that if you've got recessions, as as soon as you see consumer and business confidence falling, you see drops in spending, Um, you see drops in investment. So I think we've always been in that demand-led economy, realistically. And if you've got a supply-led scenario, pricing tends to fall. Um, So I don't think we're going to change unless we fundamentally reshape what the way the, the world economies work, which is probably a step too far for the world to cope with right now. Um, yeah, that's,
0: that's social value, Michael Porter stuff.
1: Yeah. Conscious um,
0: capitalism,
3: blah, blah.
1: Um, yeah. But I, think, but I think if you move to move to sort of, look, you know, let's just look at what's happened in the UK since Sunday night, when we look at um, lockdown lockdown, Restrictions being eased and kind of think you know the the messaging going from stay at home to stay alert, um, you know that means that businesses are trying to figure out how to open up. You know I've seen some scary um, uh, propositions where you'll have CCTV cameras everywhere measuring people's temperatures, you know plexiglass or going back to the world of cubicles where. You know, everybody's confined within a, a tiny little box to make sure that we can still fit as many people as we always used to do in a building. Uh, but now, rather than having space around us, we're going to kind of fit ourselves into into little boxes. Uh, you know, we need to redefine what does the workplace look like if we're going to maintain social distance. You know, distancing long term. You know, you're going to have to look at how do we control people visiting the toilets, how are we going to cope? You know, how are we going to control lunch times, the queue at the coffee machine or the water cooler? You know, the value that we always used to have from those little water cooler conversations where the, the gossip and the stories and the, uh, that the bring value to work happen. You know, that's where, that's where that's what people are scared of losing when they say people going to, you know, can work from home as well as the ability to see if somebody is somebody at the desk or not. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, and I do, I do have a concern that in the rush, in the scramble to start creating, uh, and producing and being economically productive, we forget the human being in all of this. And I think that there's that risk of those companies that are too focused on just generating revenue are going to be are going to end up in that scenario where they're going to overlook the human being in all of this. And then you're going to have those other country companies that are going to value caring about employees. And I can see those ones taking very different approaches um, to, to how do you, how do you manage workforces? And I was speaking to some of the exec MBA, uh, students that I, that I mentor and, um, Uh, You know, they're looking at how do we, you know, they're looking at, you know, how do we create one way systems at work? How do we make sure that we've got, you know, half a day in the office and, you know, half the company in the office and then the other half at home and staggering days in the office and making some of that optional. But knowing that people actually need human interaction, what is it we need to do around face masks? What is it we need to do around air conditioning systems do we need to switch them off do we need to install HEPA filters you know the conversations that you get down to are that's so so detailed about managing this process and you can already see some people being very gung-ho it's just a virus we'll just get back to it and other people are looking at this in far more technical ways
3: it's so interesting um, because as you're speaking Matt I was remembering what Adam was saying um, a few minutes ago, the purpose of what we 're doing is maybe up for grabs maybe up, maybe it 's something worth discussing discussing again because as you 're speaking matt um i 'm thinking if we have all these questions about how are we going to you know manage workplaces physical space um interactions communication um on top of that for me sits a discussion that if we dare have it it clarifies like the what that we want to achieve, like the the purpose of the organization, the purpose of the individual employee in the organization. And um, if we were to define a success map or, you know, like a, a, a simple strategy map of if we're clear about that, the purpose of the organization, dare I put it out there, may be changing that value, um, the value of the employee, the value of the human being might be different now that we are trying to come out of this. Then if we, if we're clear and we have buy-in in a simplistic way from the collective, then the how of implementing ways to get to, to, to bring this value or bring this purpose to life, that is not as difficult a question than if we are running ahead and saying we now need to define uh, redefine how we're interacting physically if we're not completely sure what it all means in terms of the bigger picture of what's changing
0: yeah so, so it's 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 definitely a clear so, so it, it's it's great you you're coming at this from different angles and you yeah. and you're both right there's this operationalization Matt, to your point, like, yeah. you know, how do you operationalize a change in value over the water cooler with, you know, the cubicles in the office, these sort of things? And then there is a fundamental, if we know where this change in value takes us, a more sustainable organisation, a unique competitive advantage in a target market, um, more trust from customers, uh looking after people better, whatever it happens to be, you know, People are creative. Humanity isn't, has proven itself to be relatively innovative. Um, You know, if we know where we're going, we'll work it out. And that's how historically we've done it. If we know where we're going, we'll work it out. And it's, I think, maybe knowing where the destination sits of, okay, we want our organization to be uh, to have a more sustainable and transparent supply chain, which has you know, been a conversation everyone's been kicking around for five to ten years, but here's the opportunity to actually do it. Um, we want to signal this out to market because we want to change our customer makeup. So, you know, we want to go for a more green economy, sort of a slant on, you know, the widgets that my factory is making. Um, and by doing these two things... Through some analysis, I believe that we can leap our, our our next biggest competitor because we're not competing on the cheapest, strongest quality of widget. We're actually competing on those things plus something else. It's this evolution. Like you know, we're talking about the evolution of value. I think for that to happen, people, structures, organisations also need to evolve and you know, to be ahead of that curve, obviously you need to understand that the market truly wants this. But I think irrespective of, you know, market testing and going out and kind of just, you know, trying to gather the data so someone in in kind of, you know, in um in uh if they can model it, it's you know, just look at your neighbors, look what's happening in your house. You know, people are genuinely interested in the well being of who you are and where you're at. And, you know, it's you know, like in a couple of countries, there's been big calls for, you know, frontline workers, you know, staff, teacher, you know, garbage collectors, uh, shelf stackers, food deliverers, taxi drivers, all of these people for their minimum wage to go up. It's because the value of their contribution has now had a spotlight shone on them. And I haven't come across many people who have been against that as an initiative. Like, yeah, they're keeping the place going at the moment. They should be rewarded accordingly.
3: I like what you're saying, yeah. and I'd like to be practical and like let's almost go into like what does this mean for almost practical um, steps that leaders can take in organizations to translate what we're talking about into action and um Adam, you've just said. We it would be great, you know. Uh, we should really know where this is going, right? We should know um, what this will look like, or you know, what the data about market proposition, about competitive uh, positioning, will look like if we choose A or B. But this is a unique situation where we don't necessarily um, have access to knowing what where we will go. What will happen? So, environmentally, we are in probably more uncertainty than in a lot of situations before. But so, what I'm thinking now is if the environment is uncertain and will remain uncertain and no amount of market research or competitive uh, analyses will get us to get that type of certainty, what we as human beings need in addition to environmental certainty, is interpersonal certainty. And that's what we can build. And so this is why I'm, I'm – and I'm, I hope you can pick up on this – practical for leaders. We do need to know where we're going to go. We do need to know what the purpose of our organization is and how it's, it's changing. But if we don't know this in response to the situation, what we can absolutely focus on is to be sure that – you too have my back to be sure that you and I are a team that is a team that that works for me. So interpersonal certainty is a real good strategy to go to. If environmental certainty is not something we yeah. can provide Adam.
0: Yeah. This, this concept of interpersonal certainty is brilliant. I love it. When I think it through, there are people who will be able to get there easier than others. Yeah. Um, horrible broad brush generalization. There are countries in the world that, as a part of their identity, are very firmly anchored in individualism. Mm-hmm. What is individualism? Um, it's the habit or the principle of being independent and self-reliant. And I look to the United States. Because identity, you know, self liberty, you know, all, all the good things. Great. To create this interpersonal kind of construct, one must be vulnerable to open up to a level of what they might perceive uncertainty because they are giving away a degree of control. And, you know, when I look at it on paper, you know, there are power in numbers. There are different capabilities. It makes sense. You know, not every man is an Island, blah, blah, blah. It all makes perfect sense. But when you look at the change that's required to change something like, you know, to implement a cultural change in society to be you know, more caring, you know, there 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 are there are there are structures that let me think about this. There are structures that bring people together and create that unity. You know, sporting teams, nationalism, at the Olympics, or whatever. You know, there's things that bind people together, and people enjoy that. But when it comes to their the things that are important to them people have a tendency to make sure that things are done and they usually trust themselves more than they trust others. So there's this element of trust here. And if you have someone like a government or a big organization going, we're now going to change what is valuable in how we are and you should follow us and here is the value proposition. I have to buy into that. Am I changing who I am to buy into that? And what is, and you know, and, and is that different for different people? I'd imagine it's, it's probably a very different experience, which if it's different for different people and it's complex, like all good things are, maybe that's a risk, increases the risk of, you know, changing value failing. And therefore it might push us back towards, you know, something that's warm and comfortable, like going
2: back to how we used to be. <laughs> We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the strategy behind
1: It's interesting because as you were both speaking there, for me, as we look at that inter, you know, that interpersonal certainty, it it makes me think about moving back to sort of a a more tribal way of living, um, where you had small groups of people that you could really trust to have your back. Um, Over time, you know, these would be the people that you would go hunting with, that would look after kids. Um, You know, if we look at society in the Western world and in many places around the, you know, around the world as well, um, we, we've typically moved away from the places we grow up, the families and the support structures that we grow up with. And we end up moving to, to different places, different countries, even. Here, you know. Two out of three of us are living in different countries than they were you know born in um, right now. Um, I'm feeling almost relatively untravelled having only lived a couple of years in other countries. Um, You need to read this book. (laughs) (laughs) I probably do actually. Yeah. Um, But but, but, for me, it feels like, do we need to come back to a more tribal way of of living in some ways and not in the, uh, you know, tribes fighting tribes, but actually having that support structure locally. I mean, it, You've seen sort of people putting um, flyers through doors, saying, "If you need help, you know, here's a number to call. And if you need this, uh, we don't have that normally. We don't have that that caring side of even local council normally. We don't seem to, you know. Right now, we've thrown out the the austerity message. We've thrown out the the message about the economy and balancing the books. And right now we're just looking at, can we help people survive so that when we get through whatever, you know, this, whenever that is, we're in a better place. Um, we're in a place where we can thrive and we, we've not overwhelmed healthcare systems and we've not got, you know, the dead lying in the streets like they had in, you know, during the times of the plague. Um, mm. And I wonder if that's, if we're going to end up seeing more, Maybe not tribes, but certainly more community, you know, bigger community focus going forward.
0: Yeah. So, so Jutta, I have a question for you on, 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 on this point. Is it a circumstance that change has a higher probability of adoption if the impact of the change is seen locally? I'm running with Matt's tribe kind of assertion and I'm looking at the delta between what it takes people to change and the value of changing, because, you know, if we all go, okay, look, I'm going to buy this shirt from somewhere and I know it's more sustainably sourced, but I never see or hear, you know, out of mind, out of sight, versus I'm going to buy locally and I can see this. Do you think there's this potential, you know, like it's almost like a glocalism sort of an approach. You know, I'm going to think globally, act locally. And, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, the cause and effect of seeing the impact of one's actions and how much they're a motivator for change.
3: Mm. I think it's, so the, the word that comes to my mind is propin- propinquity, like how physically closely located you are to somebody else that affects how you think, uh, think, feel and act. Um, and at the same time, I think this, the, the, the importance of, changing values or the evolution of values changing is it's almost bigger than the physical pro- proximity or propinquity that we have uh, towards each other because um, this is about the you know about how we mentally think about um, the 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 menu of options that that are in front of us and Matt I'm just I, I just cannot help but think if we are if we're now changing values, we don't necessarily have to become more parochial, you know, more small, close-knit communities. But we need to um, feel that these communities are the right communities for us to dwell in, even though we're physically actually, you know, distant from each other. And the way that I overcome... Feeling distant from people is either I spend a lot of physical time with them. That's what normally happens with people to feel, um, to almost overcome that fear of being seen for who we are. Because that's what gets us to not feel like trust from each other. Um, but the only alternative that I have if I'm not spending physically lots of time with you and just watching how you respond to different types of situation is that I share how I make sense of the situation. So I share words rather than I share experiences. That's the only alternative that I have here in this situation. And that but that quite similarly gets me to feel that we are a tribe, even though we're nowhere near physically co-located. So I can accelerate this natural evolution of becoming feeling closer by sharing more of who I am what I think is right or wrong, what I think is my causal map of if a, uh, if a then B, what I think is morally good or bad. And then you and I can work out whether we are safe for each other and whether we are a tribe. So I think leaders can do this remotely and leaders can promote communities without having worked out what the physical, spatial aspects of community are yet. Because it's probably, I'm saying it's more important that we accelerate this natural uh, path of feeling trusted, feeling like uh, like a, a, a kinship, feeling like a tribe, that I have with um, my family of origin back in Germany or with my school friends or my university friends who are now all across the world, and I can get back with them on a phone call without ever needing to travel to see them. That's the, the mm. thing. We've spent time together. We've done the, the groundwork, but we can, we can do an alternative approach to build up co- community spirit. Adam.
0: This almost goes, and I'm going to throw it to Matt, because I know mm-hmm. this is a part of your world. This is then feeding into the value of storytelling. And the narrative to propel that, because if I am a global leader and I have a dispersed organization and I've dispersed customers and I've dispersed distribution channels and everything is everywhere and we're going to change something. If I think tribal in a historic term, what keeps the consistency of the tribe going generation after generation after generation of the stories? I'm Australian, obviously, you know, Western, um, you know, uh, you know, Colonized Australia and seeing, you know, when I grew up, it was the stories of the indigenous people and the dream time and these things that have been around for tens of thousands of years that got sewn into the identity of being Australian. And they stick. You know, some of these stories stick more than my you know, childhood education did. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's how you deliver the message through the narrative. And I know, Matt, you do a lot of work in this space within kind of storytelling and marketing and, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the power of using well structured kind of instruments to create influence. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I mean, telling a story is, has so many different levels to it. Um, you know, you can look at going to how do you craft a story. And there's the very there's, there's a scientific approach, if you will, where you start looking at like who are the persona involved, what archetypes do they have, and and if you look at any uh, any typical movie or, or story that we like, uh, typically there are different roles that people play, so whether there's the king or the hero, the outlaw. Uh, the princess, uh, you know, whatever it is, um, you have these, you have these archetypes that that organisations and leaders can embody and can and can use to talk about themselves, the organize, you know, people within the organisation and the organisation itself, and then the environment outside as well. Uh, you'll notice at the moment that there's a lot of talk um, from leaders around the world putting us in a very much a wartime footing. Um, and so that we've got this, uh, we've got this external fight and we are fighting against this virus. And, you know, if you look at the, if you look at what's happening in many of the health services, there absolutely is a fight going on right now there. But then if you look outside the window, you don't see it. So they're sort of talking about this invisible killer. And it's, it's a whole way of them using, you know, almost conjuring up, a wartime spirit. And it felt to me very interesting that we had uh, VE day victory of Europe day last weekend. Right. And it felt that that was very much tapped into in the UK as a, you know, we must have this, this fighting spirit to beat this virus. But then the most crucial thing really about for stories to resonate for them to work. And I think this is where, we're starting to see organisations, uh, also governments, losing a little bit of control over lockdown itself, is that those stories have to resonate with the people. And they have to be feel that they're very, very authentic and that they match the world view that they're currently seeing. So we're not seeing hundreds and thousands of people dying in our commu- local communities, generally across the UK. Now there are places where there are hot spots and it's absolutely tragic and please don't let me un- think that I'm undervaluing the lives of any of them. Every, every person that died is, you know, has, has family there that are mourning them horribly and it's that, that uptick in death rate is, is, is an absolute tragedy. But, you know, we're not seeing that down, down the street and we're being enclosed in a much smaller world than we used to see. And so therefore, our view of what's going on is probably constrained. And that means that actually that there is a disconnect between what you would see if you're in the NHS and you're seeing the horrific scenes of people in the ICUs versus what everybody else is seeing, which is beautiful sunshine and empty parks that we can't go and sit in. Um, And you've got that, you've got that disconnect there. And so as organizations come back in, there has to be that authenticity from the leaders and the stories that they tell to be able to, to resonate with everybody. And, you know, I have a, have an amazing mentor, a gentleman called Alexander McKenzie that I was fortunate to meet enough with um, at at Cranfield on one of his practice courses. And, you know, you know, he's always talked about sort of the mind, body and heart. And and that authenticity really overlays all of that. So if it's if the facts aren't authentic, it doesn't resonate. Um, you know, if it if it's not authentic, it will never get people by, you know, by the heart and move people. And really, for, for any of these stories to work and to have impact, they've they've got to hit the mind and the body and then also the mind and the heart and then the body will follow. And, you know, that's really where we've got to show that empathy. We've got to show that we, we care um, about the people that are in that tribe, that we're trying to to change the way they operate. And um, that that's going to take an awful lot for some leaders that have been very, very focused on, you know, the, the top line and the bottom line. And, and that's, you know, that's really been the focus. And I think there's going to be some organizations that make that, that switch very naturally uh, where you have leaders that tell tell those stories you know coherently and they have people that believe in them and the way that they do things and there's going to be other organizations that are, are going to struggle with that and they're going to start saying well actually is it worth me working here for this sort of amount of money because the stories that we're telling ourselves now about value have changed and so it's going to be around what do we value as human beings as to what we as to our productivity so is it going to be I want to go out and I want to earn a lot of money so that I can have a nice you know wear nice suits and have a nice car and you know have a bigger house and all of that side of things and I'm sure people still want those things anyway but then there's a there's going to be the stories that we tell ourselves well actually it's not worth going having all that if I actually have to sit in a little enclosed box all day at work because of social Mm. distancing and I'm treated just like a, you know, like a hamster in a wheel, just typing on something, moving back to those old cubicles of the eighties, but worse. Um, And I think that there's going to be some really interesting uh, psychology of how leaders can move their organizations through the use of stories to cope with some of those changes that need to happen. (laughs)
3: Um, Matt um, let me I I absolutely love what you're saying and uh, let me ask you to almost share for our listeners um, what are some ways in which we can bring the story to life what are some ways in which we can connect mind body and heart through the way we tell the story of what's happening to us and to our organizations
1: so you know that's a great question, and you know honestly there are many people out there that are <laughs> you know that are that, that I look up to to answer these questions, but I think that the the, the crucial thing is about making it as human as possible. So it's about the it's about the putting yourself in there. It's about having real feeling, about real authenticity at the start of that. So it's about telling the truth, um, and it's being. And what's happening it's about realistic it's not it's not being it's not sugarcoating the scenario we find ourselves in right now and it's about being honest about the fact that we don't necessarily know exactly where we're going to end up through this but we can talk about the things that we value things that are important to us and then look at those stories um around you know, I, I, I like to use sort of start off by going through the process of looking at the archetypes. So trying to understand, well actually what what sort of organization do we want to be? You know, do we want to be an educator? Do we want to be the you know, do we want to be the court jester and be the joker? Do we want to be a you know, an outlaw railing against, you know, the status quo as we saw it, um, and fighting for good? You know, do we want to be Robin Hood or the Sheriff of Nottingham? We don't tell the story as that person, but it helps to give us a, um, an anchor for then the kind of narratives that we tell. And then that there's a really powerful um, uh, set of metrics, uh, so say, structure for storytelling when you, uh, you use something called Freytag's pyramid. It's fairly simple. Um, Fairly simple uh, derivation of uh, some work, created originally, from, I think it was Aristotle, where essentially you start off and you introduce the, um, you know, you introduce the status quo. Then um, typically you go through some of this what they call rising action, where uh, you have uh, something happens and your proponent is uh, is you know something changes so. You know, right now you'd be looking at, hey, we've got a virus going around outside. Um, you know, that could be that the village is burned down or, or whatever it is that happens. you um, Then typically that your hero or proponent then typically meets somebody that is going to help them on their way, whether that's King Arthur finding a sword or it's, uh, you know, you find the, the Kung Fu master or or whatever it is. Uh, maybe you meet the, you know, the, the, the hero or the heroine that's going to, um, or the, you know the love of the, the, that person's life, whatever type of story it is. You then get to the point where you have the you have the the, the big clash, uh, so sort of that, that sort of rising at you know the, the kind of the, the key point where you have that moment where you know that nothing is going to be the same again. You then have the almost the, uh, the the area where you start seeing the the fight play out towards the end game. So whether that's um, the clash between the lovers that or the the clash between, you know, things. It's that point where you think that it's never gonna happen and that the the world is going to end for whatever reason. And then at the end of the story you have the resolution and then the happy ever after. And you'll see that in nearly every single story that you watch in, in Hollywood. You can map it out. Um and it's what's fascinating is that those stories can be an hour and a half long. And of course you have more twists and turns. It can be two, four hours long. Um, you can have those mini, mini pyramids that build up across, you know, across the, across a huge story arc, or um, you can do that in thirty seconds in an advert. And there was, um, there was a great piece of research looking at the ads that, that have impact uh, in the superbot. And what happens with you know what happens with those uh, with those ads? is that they looked at what had the most impact. Um, and they measured that on people and they actually measured something called oxycont- uh, oxy- oxytocin.
3: Oxytocin. Mm-hmm.
1: Oxytocin, it's sorry, think about yeah. Yeah. Not the drug, not the, not the hormone. Mm-hmm. And, it, and basically mm-hmm. you see when you, it's, 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 a, it's a hormone that that, that looks at, um, that we released when we're engaged and that, we, that we're feeling positive. And so so that that, that hormone um, helps build trust, it helps build everything, and, and it's released by stories. And they studied the release of that, but when people were watching, you know, advertising on, on the TV, and actually showed that we had, um, uh, that, that adverts that talked about stories, you know, that use stories, were so much more powerful <laughs> than those that had, that used any of the other metrics that advertisers would typically use, so whether that was um, you know, using cute kittens or anything else—none of that worked. <laughs> it was really the story. And if you had cute kittens with a story, that's kind of a game changer.
3: I think this is gold dust, Adam. You're, you're, I just wanted to say this is um, you everything it, yeah. that you've said. I've been writing down as practical instructions of what what we can do to create a story that resonates that helps us. And that helps others connect with us. Adam, over to you, because I mm. noticed you were talking, you were getting ready to talk as well. Yeah, no, 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 but no. But wasn't no, that no. fascinating what, Ad, what Matt was just saying? Uh, uh,
0: absolutely, because it, it's, it's, it's understanding the vehicle in which the communication is received sometimes is more important than the words that are in the communication.
3: Ooh. Yeah. Say that one There's, more time.
0: The vehicle in which the communication is received is sometimes more important than the words in the communication. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. It's not it's, true that words know, don't I, I matter. I can but say, they, uh,
0: mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, there's thousands of different you know, kind of ways that I can say, you. Know, here is something you should know versus here is the story of something that happened to mm-hmm. someone. And this is the twists and turns, the emotional buy-in. And then they learnt this thing, which is what I'm trying to tell you
3: guys. When we're it's, coming it's back to, yeah, to, How you say it. It's not what you do it. It's how you do it. It's the value that you place on different aspects of the message. This is our topic. So we're coming back to the beginning of why we're talking about this. So Adam, keep, keep on talking about, um, what this means for you in terms of, uh, practical instructions of how do we package the things we need to talk about? How do we, uh, communicate? How do we shape the story? of what needs to happen next.
0: Mm. It's, a, it's a complex question that you propose because I was about to tip this whole thing on its head. Go ahead. So a couple of days, maybe a week ago or so, I read an article by a woman by the name of Sabrina Mark, and she has written a piece in the Paris Review. And forgive my French, because it's (laughs) not because it's the Paris Review. The story is called Fuck the Bread. The bread is over. (laughs) And it is a phenomenal piece of literature. Mm -hmm. So this person who is currently either a professor or is going for a professorship at different universities, and she's traveling around, she's doing all these things, and she tells the story of – how in January or February this year she was final round and she's getting tours of the library and shaking hands and meeting people and all these sort of things. And now here we are three months later and the whole thing's just materialised into dust and what it actually means and what it means being in pursuit of those things in light of what has now recently happened. So she's looking at the delta of what this actually means and she compares it. She takes this phenomena and translates it into... Kind of the vehicle of fairy tales.
3: Wow.
0: So it's absolutely fascinating. And she's not looking at the, here's the fairy tale, meet the prince, blah, 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 the happily ever after. She's looking at the inverse to go, if you know, you know, for you to, you know, free this maiden from the castle, you must turn this bowl of ash into rope. And if you do it, you will succeed. So what happens if you don't? In the context of the fairy tale, you collapse into bones and you disappear into dust and the winds of change take you off the page and you're gone. Because a lot of the stories only focus on having the capabilities or the experiences or the actions that reach the outcome. And there are a lot of people in fairy tales who are at the start, who are not at the finish. Right, mm-hmm. And When you look at the dark art of storytelling, um, how do you bring everyone along in an inclusive way that shapes the objective, the purpose, the value as to what we're actually going after in a way that brings everyone along? And at least, you know, uh, it, it's not a big read, but I've read it twice. And I found it absolutely fascinating because the way that I kind of picked up this, this review, this article, and then started to internalise it in the context of this conversation is one where I think that there needs to be an acceptance and a place for people who fall off the page in the context of the storytelling yeah you, know, you wanted to get the job you didn't get the job what does it mean not to have the job when you get spend time with the kids and you can invest in their education you can teach them all of these things that aren't necessarily you know they're obviously critically important but when you look at it from an economic lens it's reduced or you look at it from a social lens it's increased or you look at it from a moral lens it changes again and each different lens you look at look at A particular outcome or objective through has a different value quotient for one of a better thing, for one of a better explanation. So I think there is a pretty compelling case here that if you do want to propose from a practical experience, here is where we're going and here is why we're going in that direction. And when this is the thinking as to why we're not going in any other direction, There equally must be, okay, and for those of you who don't buy into this, this is how we serve you, we support you, whatever it happens to be, because change is hard. Change across groups of people, whether they're 7 or 70 million, is hard, and there needs to be an inclusive mechanism Mm -hmm. Around mm-hmm. those who either self-select out or can't change for whatever reason they choose to, they're incapable of, they don't have the capacity or the luxury to because they have other things that pump what you know, we might be saying is valuable down the deprioritization list. So I'm, I'm, I'm picking up Matt's words and I'm, tr- I'm really trying to rope in the inclusion construct of this because without it, Will it actually be really successful? We're talking also, about such a big game changer.
3: Yeah, Adam. I also, I'm, I'm also going to pause on that one because it's so important. It adds another such important dimension that we hadn't talked about before. So thank you for that, and it basically it reflects the reality that we. First of all, we don't have to create a story that resonates with everybody and it's actually counterproductive to try to create a story that puts us all into one big monolithic group. And so what you've just raised about um, having a side branch almost of a story that acknowledges that whatever the purpose and the identity is that we are shaping for our organizations now – It may not work in all facets for everybody. And so we're proactively creating paths for inclusion for people who are not completely buying into the black and white narrative that otherwise we might have created. So I really love that as an addition to Matt's need or Matt Matt was talking about the need to tell a story that is human, that is about themes and archetypes that we can resonate to. And at the same time, we are opening up the story to create it as a diverse network option where we're proactively bringing people in who don't need to be completely brought in. And by not needing to be completely brought in, they're effectively probably moving closer. Isn't that interesting?
0: Yeah, but it, just to add on to that point, is it from a from a psychology perspective, isn't that then the opportunity where social proofing will then... Kick in and start to bring those people along beyond the yeah. narrative, because yeah, everyone not- in my street is following this new change. I should follow it as well. Yeah, it's social it.
3: facilitation rather than persuasion, persuasion and advocacy. Persuasion. Yeah,
1: yeah, Matt. And that's one of the interesting things um, that I'd love to do some research on one day would be <laughs> looking at how those stories get get told, you know, at a leadership level, and then sort of looking at the impacts um, of the so we say the, the sub stories that then other people tell so how do they change when uh, you know when you've got those water cooler moments whatever they are um, you know what are the you know are people saying this is nonsense this you know this story is terrible you know and are they or are they saying this is you know, this is great are they you know if we look at if we look at the stories that the, that have come out in the press over the last few you know the last 24 48 hours um, in the uk Uh, There's been a lot of talk about confusion. The message itself was pretty clear um, about what Boris Johnson actually said. His his words were clear, but the application of how that vision is put into place, even a 50-page or 60-page document that I've I've got on my desktop right now um, and and I've read, it doesn't cover all the contingencies. So, there's, of course, there's a lot of confusion because uh, you're talking at a high level, and I've encountered this in the past, where... You know, you t- you talk you, you paint a broad picture, but you have to have managed to. Uh, if you haven't got the detail of how the specific people uh, are going to interact, um, then uh, interact with that story. And the key challenge is that they're going to foresee straight away. You've got to be able to cover some of those in that those stories as well. And I think part of the uh, part of the the, the the knack that great leaders have. Um, is identifying the key people that they need to, to either carry their stories for them and be the flag bearers for those stories, or, or not, because you need to, So you almost need to identify who, who are the, the key influencers within your organisation. How can you get, make sure that the story resonates with a big enough group of those, so that that they help tell the story? Because one one person telling a story is just one person. It takes, you need to mobilise people across Mm -hmm. the organisation to carry that story for you. Um, You know, kings didn't just tell a story. They sent out heralds across the country to tell the story for them. Um, And I think you need that same approach when you're looking at organisational change to, to, to make that happen. And of course, when you're trying to do it, do that when people are working remotely, it's even harder. Have to look at how do you identify, you know, how do you identify the key people within that organisation to, to carry on telling that story. Now, of course, we've got the, you know, we've got video, we've got um, you know all sorts of social, you know, we've got webinars and and the, everything that we could, you know, all the social, all the digital tools available to us. But you need to be able to identify now who are the key people. I need to make sure feel included in this story. Because they, those, those net, those key, so, you know, those key networkers are going to be, you know, critical for making sure that those changes propagate. And they often aren't, those people often aren't the people that you would necessarily sit within an organizational hierarchy.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think just to build on this, on, on your points, Matt, from a very practical application, kind of execution perspective, I think that there is this criticality you know within kind of, you know, the um influence mapping and you know understanding who those influence influential people are in addition to that there is also I think a criticality in relation to identifying the people who have a higher probability of succeeding through that change to reach that new kind of value state um in the face of adversity in the face where there is challenge because then. And even more so if those people are around people who have a lower probability of uh, being able to success um, succeed and uh, successfully uh, adopt, adapt to the change to embrace the new value um, because then you have kind of evidence, artifacts to perpetuate the story, the narrative, to give it that momentum Yes, you know, influence, you know, influence is, is, is a capability in a, sorry, is a capability that's required. But in addition to that, um, observable impact of people living what is being influenced, I think would also be something incredibly strong. So if you are looking at kind of, you know, changing the narrative, moving the purpose, uh, you know, introducing a new set of values into, you know, a team, a group, an organization, a structure, um, Make sure that people who have a higher probability to accept and succeed in that change um, and use that as evidence will push you down the right path.
3: Mm. I really like... What's- yeah, go, sorry, go, go ahead.
0: ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, you're, uh, I, I was just thinking out loud here. In yeah, relation let to, me, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go. No, go, go, go. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. uh, I, I just really like this idea of thinking about, um, who almost can carry the baton on, not just thinking about what, you know, what is that baton, but, uh, who can propagate it? So, so for me, this is so. If we're talking about values change, um, it's it. This is now becoming a real a strategy for a hmm, uh, bad metaphor, but for for fighting the in, the good fight in the right way with the right people being involved in fighting it in the right direction. Adam, what was your next thought?
0: Mm. Oh, the, the thought was just going to be one around. The positive reinforcement of the story being propelled. So instead of kind of, you know, you know, this is our value. We're going to go do this thing over here. And, you know, this is how we're going to change and off we go. Um, I think there needs to be a very conscious decision, not necessarily to celebrate the end arrival as the destination, but to break it down into smaller acknowledgement celebrations as you go through because if it's a long arc um you know we're going to change society for you know the better of humankind okay great but what does that actually mean well you know if you know if, if if you buy a bicycle you might get a tax rebate okay well there's a start and it's these sort of things it's 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 taking the long term and breaking it down into more short term consumable chunks that are evidence based that this is the behavior that supports the value that we are now all all in pursuant of so i i I definitely think that the, 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 there's a piece there I'm just my brain's now starting to kick into the operationalization yep. like again the so what the how um of you know taking a new value in and you know embedding it into the, in, in, into the organizational society of this is how we do things here.
1: And I think it's, yeah. you know, just to add to that, you know, one of the things that I've seen work really well is that if you've got, you know, new purpose and value, and I say new, but uh, something that you really want to talk about, you know, absolutely. The first thing you have to do is you have to have the leader talking about that and the leadership teams talking about that. Um, and, you know, almost taking then an influencer marketing approach as to how do we propagate that through an, or, you know, an organization. But then, mm-hmm. you know, where you're identifying key influencers and empowering them to start telling derivatives of that story. Um, but it's also about giving people a platform to to share their successes along that journey. So you would look at how do you, I mean, if we look at working from home, how do you then empower People within the, the organization to tell what helps them work uh, successfully to be productive and what works for me isn't necessarily going to work from for everybody, or at least there might be some fundamental Mm. things I can, I can say that I think a morning routine is really helpful and yada yada yada, yada. but how I implement that in my life by getting up, having a cup of coffee, going for a run, coming home, having breakfast or having breakfast in the shower sitting down at my desk that actual routine isn't going to work for everybody but the fact that you're putting in yeah. that routine is going to help um and i find that you know I've, I've found over the last seven weeks or so that when i talk to people about having a morning routine and don't feel that you've got to change everything but just make sure that you set your alarm at the same time that you're getting up and that you're actually inst- instilling some discipline in that routine it can set everything up there are Those, you know, people then start saying, hey, well, I find what you do over here really inspirational. I go, hang on a second. I'm just doing this because it helps me. This is me being accountable to me. But but other people find that helpful. And I think that that's a really powerful learning that I've had, that just small things you do can be so powerful for other people.
3: Matt, I love that. And um, I'd like to take stock of the three elements that we've now got uh, in my book, we've we've got the um, the first thing to embed or reprioritized value is to tell a story and that's story that's human, that's inspiring, and that creates a narrative that I can relate to authentically. The second one, Adam added, that is to open up possibilities for people to not completely come along to create inclusion for people who may not feel included so i'm creating a branch that's my second bit the third one that you've just added is an opportunity for people to share and chew through and digest whatever it is you've uh, whatever story you t- you are telling how you've been try- trying to be inspirational and influencing and creating opportunities for diversity and inclusion but the third one is really useful to almost Relati- make it relative. It works for me to have a morning routine. It doesn't necessarily work mm. for you. Adam, what works for you? So we're now almost democratically rolling out this proposed change, and we're getting feedback, and we're, we're creating an, a, a breeding ground to get it to be embedded in different incarnations. So, th- so those are the three big things that I've noticed. Adam, what's next?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think you know I've, I've got two kind of big takeaways here. Mm-hmm. And one of them is kind of building on top of your point and maybe taking your point and kind of twisting it a little bit, um, which is the importance of context dependency um, in relation to the narrative of how we're going to do this and why we're doing this and why this is good for the common good and why it may or may not be good for you. A quick story that comes to mind, I remember oh, maybe 10, 5, 10 years ago, I was working with an organisation very large, very complex, and they had, like, many large, you know, multinationals. They had a a sales competition where, you know, if you got into, you know, the final, you know, the president's circle or whatever, and, you know, you you get to go on a trip and all these wonderful things. And, um, you know, the 10 top salespeople of the organisation all got the awards and everyone was very happy. And uh, the prizes were um, all expenses paid trip um, to Paris for those salespeople. They're all going to get there, and it's all going to be great, wonderful. And you know, the organisation which was uh, headquartered here in Europe thought this was amazing and great. The winners come through, and one of the uh, winners was um, from a West African country, and their home and the city that they were in, and the you know the, 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 their neighbourhood um, was very high crime rate, very high theft. Um, uh, they've just had someone recently in their family pass away. Um, there were challenges financially. They had problems with the kids. Um, you know, it was just absolute chaos and bedlam. And, you know, this salesperson who won this prize, um, got the prize and just looked at it and just went, this has, this means this is the worst thing that could possibly happen to me. Like, you know, we're at a really crunch moment. In our family. And you want me to take a week off and go to Paris and pretend to be happy? And this story then wound its way back to the leadership of the of, of, of the company. And they were just like, What do you mean? Like they never for a second thought that maybe not everyone wants to go on a plane. What would be valuable to this person is a week off work where they can stay at home and you know take care of the things that needed to be taken care of. Because Everyone's context is different. There might be a good common good that is widely accepted, but without context, you will miss people. Mm-hmm. So the context of the change and the story and the narrative and mm-hmm. the engagement and the journey and the support and the influence and the empowerment, without context, it will struggle. Mm-hmm. The second point is this piece in relation to um the importance around um the interpersonal you what was the phrase you use? Like interpersonal. Connectivity, certainty.
2: interpersonal...
0: Certainty. certainty. Certainty, yeah. Interpersonal certainty is fascinating. Um I am an only child. I have a tendency to be reliant on myself. And sometimes being reliant on interpersonal relationships or interactions or, you know, the network of how things can work um, can for some be quite a hair-raising experience it kind of goes against the discipline of identity um depending on how you're brought up and your circumstances and again your context but i think from a leadership perspective showing the benefit of what that interpersonal certainty and collectivism can actually bring on what it means to people who either opt out or, you know, I, I think the point I'm making is that when it comes to groups of people and tribal and tribal identity, particularly in relation to a common good, a common shared goal, like the change towards a new value that's going to be valuable for us, for our, for the people that we serve, um, making sure that no one is left behind. And it's again, now that I say it out loud, both of those points aren't too far from each other. It's, it, it's the context of me buying into it and it's making sure the context of the objective makes sense. Um, and if they don't, then create multiple narratives or, you know, select your own objective or your own path forward. But here is where we're going and why it's good for the common good. I think so clear definition of the change in value and pointing out that there is not solely one path to get to the destination is probably a very high value exercise. And so Matt.
1: Yeah, so if I, if I look at the key two things, um, things. Uh, you know, I very much like the Divergent yeah, I part like the divergent idea. Part. Um, mm. It uh, kind of resonates very strongly with my, with my childhood love of sort of the types of books that will choose your own adventure books. Um, Bandersnatch, that was released on Netflix not too long ago, where you, you know, while you, you actually did have several endings you could get to, there was kind of a clear sort of ultimate goal for most of these books and but you can get there through multiple paths and i really enjoyed that and i actually used to quite enjoy exploring different paths and purposefully taking paths that were different just to see what would happen um so that was obviously the curiosity and exploratory kind of person that i am um i think the other one though that that really stuck you know you know sort of resonated with me was uh your, your point about interpersonal safety and um it made me think of some research by Google and they were looking at how successful project teams would, um, would operate. And, uh, you know, the key thing that s- successful projects teams had was that they all felt very safe in them, that they felt that other people had their backs and that they, they also felt that the project could fail, um, in the fact that failure was a learning exercise. And so you know, you may or may not reach your, yeah. your desired end goal, but it was uh, the the whole the whole point of a project is to try to change something. And change does not every approach to making that change is going to be successful. So mm-hmm. it was so, okay to not succeed, as long as you learnt something, as long as you could take something away and add that to mm-hmm. the cultural lessons of learning. And so that that for me was a really important. Um, Study is something has that certainly been important in, in previous roles I've had. And, you know, to hear that again and kind of, sort of think about how we move forward now, making sure that people feel safe, that they feel safe to have an opinion that's different, um, to be coping differently, to, to not be okay with what's going on, in, either in the outside world or in the organisation. But to feel that it's somewhere, that, that, that there's still a space where they're safe, I think that is critically important. Mm. Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, thank you for that, Matt. And uh, I wanted to pick up, um, in addition to what you guys have summarised just now, I, uh, it really resonated with me and closed the loop um, that you had said earlier, Matt, um, that we need to anchor around a question that's a little bit around purpose identity about who do we want to be and who do we want to be goes back to a discussion. And I would encourage um, anybody who's listening to this to think about and to have an open um, discussion with the people around them about um, how do we want to do things? um, What are the qualities of being and the qualities of doing that we want to have a bit more of, and what are some things that are maybe less in relation to the purpose or the who of who we're defining right now. And then use that as an anchor around the actions that we've been discussing. And that's a really nice thing for me to to focus on as my Big takeaway. What's the anchor of the values that I want to move towards? And what are the values that maybe are now outdated 2020, knowing about mm-hmm. COVID-19?
0: Yeah, I like that. Definitely, definitely. So the value that the, the evolution of value. That was really good. And the best thing is that there's going to be more.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: watch this space
0: (laughs) you got it
2: adam cox is a trusted strategic advisor to leaders executives and organizations across the globe dr yuta tobias mortlock is a social psychologist who researches and advises on how to help people at work be and do well dr matt wilkinson is a marketing strategist and educator who helps life science and tech companies bring disruptive products and brands to market. If you're interested in the presenters' work or wish to sign up for their newsletters, go to thestrategybehind.com. Strategy Behind is an original podcast produced and engineered by Santiago Castello. Music is composed by Judson Lee. And to find more episodes, visit thestrategybehind.com forward slash podcast.